they rounded up us uh, and finally they they uh, they beat us and took us to prison later they released us in fact and uh, that was a very very serious incident at the time Welcome to the 20th episode of Global, folks. A nice round number, 20. I like it. (laughs) Sinclair, we haven't hosted an episode together in a while. Yeah, not since your first one, right? No, hasn't been that long. Yeah. Oh, man. Well, by now, I think I'm a veteran. Yeah. Maybe, maybe not. Now you're an expert. Well, Sinclair, how about you tell us what Global is all about? Global is a monthly podcast where we share stories and insight from authentic voices on one country per episode. And this episode is going to be really interesting. We have a really cool country for you. You may have heard about it in the news. Ethiopia. Yep. You may or may not. I like knew very little about Ethiopia before starting this, which I feel like I say this at the beginning of every episode, right. which really just shows way. how uneducated I am. So maybe I should just stop saying that. <laughs> but um, no, but actually really interesting. You listeners are a knowledgeable bunch, and we always like hearing from you. You sure hear from us a lot. So if you have any feedback for us, any corrections, or even compliments about our commentary on this episode, please reach out to us. You can email us. That's podcast at iri.org. You can tweet at us using the hashtag, hashtag global podcast, or share your thoughts in the review section. We were lucky enough to interview three really interesting guests for this episode. Do you want to kick us off with introductions? Sure. I interviewed Bekele Gerba who is a leading dissident and former political prisoner. Um, he's the secretary general of the Oromo Federalist Congress Opposition Party. Mr. Grubba is a foreign language professor by training, but he was imprisoned twice since 2011, most recently in 2015, oh, wow. on terrorism charges after waves of anti-government protests broke out in the Oromia region. Mm-hmm. That saw hundreds of protesters killed and thousands arrested. Oof. He was freed this past February, luckily, along with other opposition figures after charges against him had been dropped in what has been seen as a move to lessen tensions in the country. Wow. Who did you talk to, Jesse? Well, I had the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Mena Demesi. Dr. Demesi is the Vice President for Research and Policy Analysis of the Congressional Black Caucus Foundation and an adjunct professor at the University of California Washington Center. She serves on the advisory board of the Diaspora African Women's Network, which promotes the critical role of African diaspora women in the continent's development. Also, she's the national youth coordinator for the Society of Ethiopians Established in the Diaspora, a nonprofit aimed at empowering the Ethiopian community in the U.S., which I believe is an organization that was started by her father. And it was a fascinating conversation. And then lastly, uh, we spoke to Fikari Ancho, a civic activist and survivor of torture. He was the lead accountant and a union leader at the wholly government-owned Ethiopian Airlines. Recently, working with the Torture Abolition and Survivors Support Coalition, Mr. Ancho has informed U.S. policymakers about the situation in Ethiopia, including um, advocating for House Resolution 128 on human rights abuses in Ethiopia. The resolution passed on April 10th. Well, we have a great, great lineup of guests. So let's get started. Let's get started. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. First, I did want to talk about your current positions because you do have an extensive academic background and obviously professional background working with diaspora groups. So can you talk to us about how you got inspired to propel yourself in that line of work? My parents actually came to this country in the 19. 70s through the American Field Service program, which allowed them 
and their senior years of high school to come to the United States, live with a host family, finish their senior year in high school, learn all about what the American education system has to offer, and then go back to Ethiopia to leverage their expertise and contribute to the forward movement of the country. But unfortunately, in the mid-1970s, the socialist regime known as the Derg took over, and uh, my parents were some of the lucky ones that got a chance to come back to the United States and settle in Cleveland, Ohio. And so growing up in the Midwest, where there is not a a large Ethiopian population, making sure that my brother and I had a really clear sense and appreciation for our identity was something that we were raised to have since a very young age. And so throughout growing up uh, in my formidable years, I have made multiple trips to Washington, D.C. through an organization my dad and his friends co-founded in the early 90s called the Society of Ethiopians established in the diaspora. Mm-hmm. Oh, SEED, right? SEED, yes. Yeah. So I am going to go into questions about your work and SEED in particular, but before then, can you give our listeners a brief background of the political and historical events that led to such a large diaspora community from Ethiopia? Sure. So we are sitting in Washington, D.C., home to the largest population of Ethiopians outside of Ethiopia. In the 1950s, uh, you know, Ethiopia is one of the countries we proudly say has never been colonized, but had a constitutional monarchy until the socialist regime took over in 1975. Um, there were people who, like my my parents and some before them in the 50s who came to the United States for educational purposes, but again, with the intent to return home. Uh, because of the government changing to the socialist regime and the uh, masses uh, of, of people enduring what we call the Red Terror, which was basically an oppressive regime that uh, took control over anyone um, in, in a very authoritative way, uh, anyone who was seen as opposing the socialist government. And that led later on into the 70s, uh, thousands of folks who fled as refugees and asylees. Uh, many came to the United States. Um, D.C. was a place where uh, they recognized similar communities already taking shape. And then the numbers continued to grow uh, through the 80s and more recently in the 90s through the divisa, the diversity visa program. Mm-hmm. As we often see with diaspora communities, they do tend to play a large role in domestic politics back in their home country. So what does that role look like for the Ethiopian diaspora? A good question. So uh, first, it's it's good to mention the one thing I've, I've realized through my work and research and also being a member of the Ethiopian American community, which is also symbolic of other uh, sort of hyphenated Americans, if you will, this sort of heightened sense or connection to one's homeland or one's parents' homeland. Um, and in the case of Ethiopian community in D.C. and across the country has this heightened sense of interest in policy back home. Mm-hmm. And so there is this uh, sense of um, of almost b- beyond interest and obligation to mm. continue to give back to your country mm-hmm. even after you come to the United States. And so the diaspora in many ways has... Um, 
ensure that their progeny, their kids and their grandkids understand the importance of their history and therefore understanding what it means to share these multiple identities, to be an American and um, engage in the American polity. And part of that is also giving back to where you came from. So the diaspora has seen in itself in many ways as, uh, as a middle ground, as a bridge between the United States and uh, Ethiopia in this case, um, and has really taken that to heart in ways that uh, I believe could be quite beneficial given the current situation that's uh, uh, happening in Ethiopia. So as you may or may not know, at IRI, we focus a lot of our programming exclusively on empowering youth to be active in the political and civic spheres. Um, So can you tell us a bit more about what role the youth in Ethiopia have traditionally played in these spheres? The youth in Ethiopia, you know, about I mean, close to 70% of uh, Ethiopia's population, I believe, is under 35, There's right? a huge youth bulge, right, going on in the country. Yes, and that's, mistaken. yes, and across the continent. And so there's been this renewed uh, commitment to um, opportunity for young people. I mean, education has always been seen as the pinnacle goal for any uh, family, any child, any adult. That has always been the goal to success in Ethiopia. Um, there is a history of young people organizing. You know, even though we've had great appreciation for the many great emperors of our time, there there were even movements around uh, sort of against the monarchy. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, as, and then you know, with the Derg, of course, it was a lot harder because of um, the uh, sort of terror-stricken uh, uh, environment at that time. So, what are the other challenges facing the youth in Ethiopia today? So poverty um, is uh, increased uh, income wealth disparities. Uh, there, unfortunately, this is also challenging the population of um, of adults across the country in different sectors. But for children, poverty is a huge problem. Um, disease is a huge problem. Uh, Ethiopia is the beneficiary of. A lot of um, U.S. foreign aid, which um, is great. Uh, however, it really takes the government itself to sort of lead the the sort of long, uh, sustainable efforts mm-hmm. to combat a lot of these socioeconomic problems that uh, the country has. And um, the youth have been, unfortunately, challenged disproportionately in that regard. So two follow-up questions. The first would be, how do youth, and I guess I I don't want to just narrow it down to the youth, but just the population at large express their dissatisfaction to the government, and then how does the government respond to that? What reforms are they working on passing to respond to this so first, I'll go back to one of uh, a very sort of personal experience I had in graduate school at the University of Michigan. In 2005, um, there was a monumental shift in Ethiopia's public opinion as a result uh, and mobilization as a result of the elections that took place. So you had upwards of more than 95% of Ethiopia's country come out, like outstanding numbers of of people, lines in the rural regions, in the urban areas, outside, down the line. I mean, it was really amazing. We had election observers there. The Carter Center was there. There was this groundswell of commitment to engage in civic empowerment. Mm -hmm. And so at the University of Michigan at the time, there was a course on social and emerging markets in Ethiopia. And 25 of us with faculty did a long-term analysis of some of the challenges in terms of democratic 
democratic governance and economic opportunity. And so we actually took our entire team to Addis Ababa, the capital, um, in 2005, three weeks before the election. Um, we interviewed ministry officials, journalists, uh, we interviewed civil society organizations, everyone. And there was this excitement around what the results of the election would mean. Mm -hmm. um, and there was a desire for massive change because the same ruling party has been in power since the early 90s, the Ethiopian People's Revolutionary Democratic Front, otherwise known as the EPRDF, which still is in power today. And a lot of people came out, but unfortunately, the government did not do its job to protect the people. Um, there was a protest, which is uh, allowed by uh, the Constitution, but a lot of those folks were uh, persecuted, targeted, imprisoned. Many were killed. Um, and it was shocking to a lot and th a lot of people across the country. The Coalition for Unity and Democracy was one of the major opposition parties at the time. A lot of folks who led that party actually uh, were Ethiopians who had immigrated to the United States who went back to then run for office. But because the Ethiopian government's uh, sort of tight, strong arm um, on the electoral process, uh, you know, a lot of people were... Uh, feared into silence. Um, election observers were even targeted, um, and they were kicked out of Ethiopia. That's a long answer to your question, yeah, but it's no, important it's to set that context because it informs why the current moment is so exciting. Um, there hasn't been um, much opportunity for the Ethiopian people to really re-engage since that time. Um, and now that there's a new leader in power who's saying, work with us. I want to listen to you. The government here is to here is here to protect and represent your interests. Uh, this is the first time in, since 2005, I would say, arguably, that the Ethiopian people are really being taken seriously and have a potential opportunity to really voice um, their interests at the polls and re-engage in the political process. I think the audience would benefit from your insights on the most recent changes. Can you give a little bit more detail about the actual reforms, like the economic reforms, the political reforms? that Ethiopia is going through right now. What has happened is, as I mentioned, if you look at the historical context over the past uh, two, three decades, you have a country of great potential that has since grown in terms of its economic uh, apparatus, uh, but has been sort of feared into silence in terms of the political climate. The EPRDF, the ruling party uh, that has been in power and continues to uh, be the majority, you know, power in parliament, uh, elected its uh, prime minister, uh, Dr. Abiy Ahmed, um, who took office on April 2nd. And the backdrop is that um, Ethiopia had been facing a lot of challenges with a groundswell of opposition from uh, the, the Romo community, the Amara community, many people who uh, who were upset about sort of the gentrification taking place, um, the sort of blind um, willingness of the government to just build, 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 and put infrastructure at the top and really displace communities with no compensation. People just literally being told, you have 30 days to leave this home uh, that you've been living in for 30 years, um, and now we're just going to displace you. Uh, way over there in this place you don't know. And people just thought, well, you know, their families were being torn up uh, and torn apart. So they started to, and so pro 
protests started. They started in Ethiopia. People were willing to get on the front lines, even if it meant their life. Um, and the diaspora in the United States and across the globe also started um, increasing their opposition and reaching out to uh, American officials to listen and uh, think about what the implications of this means for the future of Ethiopia. And so Dr. Abi, many are referring to as, as literally God sent. Um, <clears throat> he's someone who he's about 42 years old. He's someone who identifies and comes from this new generation of leaders. He has a PhD in peace uh, and security studies. Um, uh, his background, he speaks uh, Oromiña, Amharic, the national language, and Tigrinya, um, and English. And so in many ways, he himself symbolizes the unity of Ethiopia, that unfortunately the party he comes from, uh, I would say, was not uh, necessarily in support of ever since the implementation of this ethnic federalism that the ruling party did, right? So Ethiopia has this long, amazing history of national unity with, you know, 80-some ethnic and linguistic groups. Um, Amharic's the official language, but you have this very rich, diverse culture, and in comes this ruling party uh, in the early 90s that that now says, we're going to divide you all by your ethnic group. Um, and this created uh, massive amounts of division. It was sort of the divide and conquer strategy at its best. Um, and a lot of infighting happened because of that. Um, it was one of the most detrimental, I believe, things to ever break uh, or challenge the national unity of Ethiopia. And so all this resistance, you know, started to fester um, in addition to some of the very uh, aggressive um, policy initiatives around the government uh, in light of economic opportunity, or I should say economic investment, uh, that was really taking a toll on people's livelihood. Now, uh, if it weren't for Dr. Abi uh, being who he is, a lot of us believe there would probably be another civil war or some massive uh, rebellion of sorts that would uh, really turn for the worse. And that's really where Ethiopia was going. Uh, he's practicing what he preaches. Mm -hmm. He's released mm -hmm. political prisoners. He's uh, put an end to the state of Literally emergency. Right? And also he signed, yes, he, he, yes, they sort of revisited this old peace agreement that was um, dividing Ethiopia and Eritrea. And so the, the change in since April 2nd has been phenomenal in many ways, almost unbelievable. Mm -hmm. And uh, for me, uh, just watching and tracking all the changes, uh, it was the signing of the peace agreement that really resonated to me that this man is not only God sent, but has uh, the brilliance, the integrity, the diverse appreciation that he's putting into action in ways that have been um, so beautiful to watch. Um, and the people's reaction has been equally amazing to witness and be part of. So there's hard work to come, but I think the major commitment to engagement with the people, and not just in Ethiopia, but in the diaspora, has been really revolutionary. So we are waiting to see what this will all mean in terms of sustainable policy changes, but it's definitely headed in the right direction. Mr. Bekele Gerba, thank you so much for finding the time to talk to us today. Um, 
Before we discuss your own political activism and experiences, I think our audience would benefit from some historical context. There's many different ethnic groups in Ethiopia with strong individual histories. Um, how do the dynamics between these ethnic groups manifest in the country's politics? Long ago, uh, during the imperial regime and the Derg regime, there was a lot of complaint that the Amharats are dominating and the Amharic uh, language is dominating other languages. So one of the grievances was um, that the other nation nationalities be, are being ignored. Uh, this time round, now that superiority seems to have been taken by the Tigrans and uh, um, all the politics and the economy uh, as well as the military command went to the, the, the Tigrans. So um, now the current uprising has brought a change uh, uh, to the extent that uh, these people are no longer in an influential place. And it seems that um, this time around uh, that uh, ethnic superiority is over. But in the long run, uh, we don't know what is going to happen. But uh, at present, it manifests itself in a way that other nationalities are also being equally involved. It looks like that. Mm -hmm. So other ethnicities are equally involved in the reform efforts and, and Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed's government? I think the reform has not started yet in earnest, but things look very much promising. Uh, therefore, at least uh, there is no one particular domination, it seems, and, uh, and uh, we don't know what the future holds. So let's switch gears to talk about your own political activism. You were originally a language professor. Uh, so what motivated you to get involved with politics? What were your goals? Yeah, uh, injustice, where I was not able to, 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 to stand. And uh, every, everybody, like anybody, I was not able to do my job uh, independently uh, because uh, since the uh, expulsion of uh, OLF from the transitional government in 1992, uh, it so happened that uh, the Oromos were mainly targeted, and uh, I belong to that ethnic group. Therefore, I thought that I have also to contribute in order to do away with, uh, with uh, the repression and uh, injustice. Therefore, I took part in the politics very recently. And uh, since I started involving, I uh, tried to involve with uh, all my ability. And I went to prison at least twice. Wow. Um, could you describe the events that were happening in the country that ultimately led up to your imprisonment in 2015? That was the second time you went to prison, right? Yeah. Uh, first, I was in prison in 2011. If you remember, during that time, there was a, an Arab Spring. And yes. um, most dictators were uh, being pushed aside. And the government was very panicking, the Ethiopian government. Therefore... Uh, all the uh, activists and um, uh, uh, political opponents were taken to prison indiscriminately. I was part of them. I was one of them. Um, after that, I served three years and uh, seven months in prison. After I was released in March 2015, uh, there was a campaign uh, for, uh, for election. I campaigned for my party again. Uh, in one of the places I was beaten up um, by the police. 
And then uh, the election took place. After the election, they told us that we lost it. Uh, yeah, that EPRDF has won 100%. Um, and following that, the the government uh, declared another uh, huge move uh, to expand Addis Ababa by um, the size of Addis Ababa 30 times. And uh, that will result in the eviction of about 6 million people. Wow. Especially farmers. Uh, who do not have any means of subsistence other than uh, their uh, land and farming. Therefore, we protested against that. Uh, because of that, uh, as a party, we decided to demonstrate and to stand up against it. Uh, finally, almost all the leadership of our party was taken to prison, and uh, I was one of them. I had to serve the other two years and two months in prison once again. So you mentioned that you were beaten up when you were campaigning, is that it? What, yeah, yeah, what yeah. was the reason? Because I went to a place where the Prime Minister was uh, campaigning himself uh, in Oromia at a place known as Badele. We happened to find ourselves in one particular place and uh, we had, uh, I think, more supporters than the government and uh, they were uh, very angry about it. Uh, so they didn't want uh, us to go on with the campaign. They rounded up us, uh, and finally they, they they beat us and took us to prison. Later they released us, in fact, and uh, that was a very much very serious incident at the time. And uh, when you were in prison, what was your everyday experience like? Well, when we went to prison, we decided, not only myself, but uh, members of my party, we decided to take the leadership, uh, to take the center of the struggle to prison. Um, meaning we used to uh, to discuss uh, amongst ourselves and uh, fellow uh, prisoners there. We were discuss discussing about the nonviolent struggle there, whether... Uh, uh, armed struggle or um, nonviolent struggle is feasible. We tried to convince as many young people as we could. Uh, and we tried to organize around nonviolent struggle in the prison itself. Mm, so we used to write uh, many letters so that it reaches the wider public and then the era of the youth uh, in Oromia. Uh, we tried to design. Uh, peaceful resistance uh, in which we really succeeded. Uh, so uh, I think what we're doing was we're, we're reading, we're translating works of uh, people like Martin Luther King, and we were trying to adapt that to our situation and uh, we tried to apply it, to implement, to implement it, to implement it. So I think uh, uh, we, what we were doing was we were uh, totally engaged during our days there. Uh, I think that was a fruitful and we think we have contributed. That's pretty amazing. Um, okay, it's good that you had the opportunity to still meet with your, your fellow party leaders and continue the struggle while you were in prison. Um, well, the government finally dropped its charges against you this February amid widespread protests and strikes. Given its track record, why do you think the government is now starting to release some political prisoners? Yeah, the, the, the pressure was huge. International pressure was huge. Uh, 
and uh, many organizations especially human rights organizations like the amnesty international and uh, human right watch were releasing uh, many uh, reports regarding ethiopia and uh, i think there was a huge pressure and inside there was even great pressure than the outside one uh, the girls were uh, in protests, everybody was uh, demonstrating, and uh, the country was almost, the country was in the midst of, uh, in the midst of uh, protests all over. Uh, therefore, I think they were not able to continue. They were not able to defend themselves very much. They had no evidences. Therefore, I think the only option they had was to release us and uh, other political prisoners as well. What were the charges against you? The charge was um, I was accused of a terrorist act. I, I, Just by campaigning? Yeah, yeah. Wow. I, I work in the university. I earn my salary there. I go to churches. Um, and I'm doing my job every time in front of their eyes. But uh, like they did in 2011, uh they accused me of going to Kenya and receiving uh, uh, military training to to be uh, an OLF member uh, or fighter. But in fact, I was there day in and out. Um, as I said, uh, it was completely ridiculous. They were not able to produce uh, any evidence this time round. As we're talking about the government releasing a number of political prisoners. Um, it's still just the first step, right, in terms of eventual political reforms that Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed is doing. Um, in your opinion, what are some of the other steps that need to be taken to address the human rights and media freedom in situations in the country? Yeah, I think reforms are going on. They are good. And I think a uh, lot has to be done. For example, the, uh, the electoral board must be reformed from top to bottom, from the national level to the... Uh, to the local level. What's the problem with the electoral board right now? Because it's non-partisan. It is... Um, uh, they oh, are it's partisan. Oh, oh, yeah. yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah, it is partisan. Mm -hmm. Sorry, it is partisan. Therefore, uh, they rig the, 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 the votes in, in, uh, in favor of the APRDF. This is what the board has been doing so far. And uh, if um, really an independent electoral board is not established, then we, we cannot have free and fair election. So right. that reform must go on, and uh, uh, others like um, the media, where the political parties, other political parties must have uh, access to the media because uh, now there are no independent medias. Uh, you, they cannot establish their own bylaw that is forbidden, and the government is not allowing them uh, uh, to have access to the media. Therefore, I think the media laws must be reviewed and uh, uh, probably they must have some access to the media. Uh, these mm -hmm. are uh, some very important issues that have to be addressed. Yeah. And then, of course, uh, the, the law on terrorism, right, that allows them to crack down on people who are not Yeah, yeah, being the, the law, the law, uh, the, the anti-terrorist law, mm -hmm. plus the societies and um, the civil societies law, uh, and then the press law, all these things must be reviewed and then uh, I think they might be 
uh, tailored in such a way that they allow some democratic processes. Thank you so much for joining us, Mr. Ancho. I read a little bit about your life story from the testimony you gave to in front of the State Department, was it? Mm-hmm. And I mean, it's an incredible story. And I think our audience would be really interested to hear about some of your personal experiences. Okay, to start with, uh, uh, I was born 53 years ago in the capital city of Ethiopia. Uh, I contracted uh, polio and uh, because of that, uh, I faced a serious problem for my feet. And uh, thanks to my family and society, I could uh, able to pass various school levels. I got diploma in the field of accounting. And uh, after that, I had uh, faced uh, tremendous uh, uh, harassment uh, to get a job. And uh, thanks to God, uh, I managed uh, to get uh, the job at Ethiopian Airlines. But before that, uh, I faced uh, almost, uh, uh, I couldn't get a job. Uh, exactly that fits my, uh, my field of study. But mainly because of my disability, I was denied. Even after I got that job at Ethiopian Airlines, uh, I faced a f- serious problem. So what? What kind of harassment and hardship did you face there? I was denied uh, transfers, uh, promotions, delegations. Even I trained uh, about uh, 20 uh, staffs, but they become my boss. Throughout my work history in Ethiopian Airlines, I worked for 25 years, but I was denied to to be a member of uh, management. After I knew that my rights and benefits were deprived, I start to read and uh, the rights, my rights and uh, obligations. And when I start to uh, challenge my rights and benefits, employees of the airline, knowing that uh, I can represent them, they elected me as a, a union uh, leader. And I become a executive and financial officer of Ethiopian Airlines Basic Trade Union. So you managed to find a way to leadership despite all those barriers. <laughs> no, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, during that time, I had a, a very strong stand to defend the rights and benefits of employees. And uh, they elected me three times for the total of uh, nine years. Sometimes you compromise. On one way, you have to take responsibility of uh, all these thousand employees. On a, another way, you have your own individual grievances. Uh, the only option was I to leave my individual grievance as a div- disabled person because I have representation here. I left all my individual grievance. Therefore, I start to uh, represent only the union. Sometimes, some years uh, back, the government came with a new strategies to fire all uh, employees, those who are not party members, and to employ uh, empl- uh, employee party members and small ethnic uh, group 
members to be managerial position. As a union leader, I had to oppose this one. I had a strong stand to, to go against uh, this decision. What they did is just uh, to attack indivi uh, individually, one by one. I was forced to resign from the executive level. I resigned. After my resignation, they start to attack me individually. Mm. And they criticized me that I have uh, another agenda uh, and uh, attacking the union, attacking the management, and even challenging the agenda of the government. It wasn't enough that you left your leadership role, but they wanted you to leave the company entirely because you weren't a member of the ruling party? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and after I left this uh, union leadership, even this uh, continued to attack me, mm. just to leave this company. Right, right. Yeah, either to go... Uh, side by side with the government uh, party mm -hmm. or to leave the company. Yeah. But uh, in the meantime, uh, one day they come to my office, the security guards came to my office. They took me to the director's security office and they forced me to take off my clothes. Uh, I become naked uh, for 25 minutes and uh, after that, uh, one of the police officers opened the door and go to the corridor. I screamed not to go out because I would have been mad or crazy. And uh, I resisted. After that, I sit down and uh, they ordered me to wear my clothes and go to office. And even they ordered to, to go out from the company. And I said, okay, and I, I went to my home. And uh, after that, uh, I wrote uh, to disability organizations, National Disability, Human Rights uh, Commission, Ministry of Foreign Affairs. I applied to different uh, organizations, but nobody responded to me positively because all the party members are close. And are there any you know, um, specific protections for people with disabilities, persons with disabilities in Ethiopia? No, we don't have. We, we have proclamations. Mm -hmm. uh, that proclamation is a dormant uh, proclamation. Uh, I say this because if, uh, if any person violates that uh, proclamation of, of disability, he will be fined for 2,000 up to 5,000 uh, bir, which means 100, a maximum of $175. Therefore, nobody cares uh, to pay that and we don't have, uh, we can't say, we don't have any law. Yeah. This is a, a country where we are living with 100 millions of people. If you don't change this attitude, it's very painful. I can't, I don't want to be praised uh, like a hero, being a disabled person and being uh, at the top level. What I need is to have accessible. If I have accessibility, I, go, I can go to work, I can I can have employment. I can I can have learning, and another problem is the government itself should lift the charities and societies proclamation that says ninety percent of the contribution must come from the members. Members they are very poor. They ninety nine percent have no job at all. They don't have. Even they don't have daily bread. 
and at the same time you expect 90% to bring. Well, and I'm sure there's there's a lot of work to be done in um, raising awareness about people, persons with disabilities dignity and their rights. Yeah, all yeah. Around the we, world. Have, uh, we have we uh, have uh, 7 million uh, persons with disabilities among 100 million people. But we you have very very narrow uh, chance. There is help from your family and there is help from your society, but you don't have any access. For example, I was going three to four kilometers uh, while I was uh, high school, from uh, my village up to my school place. And after you reach to your uh, school place, you have to go to three floors. You don't have elevators. Uh, even this time, we have modern uh, buildings but they don't give you elevators. Uh, even the airline uh, uh, denied me to have a, a service because uh, they said to me that it will open precedence. If you give you this, other person will come and uh, it creates precedence. Therefore, they denied me the opportunity. I just wanted to go back to the, the political context in Ethiopia that that caused that whole situation when um, the party came in and said all the employees who don't belong to this party have to leave. Could you tell us about what caused that? Uh, I think uh, after they came to power from the international point of view and from the country point of view, everything seems uh, good. They came to uh, power in 1991. And even I joined it and the same year. But everything was very nice. Uh, it seems it was going nice. But when they start to fear another political uh, opposition to raise arms, what they thought is that uh, if we uh, put the whole economic sectors under their hand, they thought that uh, everything will be okay. Hmm. Therefore, what they de decided is uh, to make every major economic sectors under their uh, party members. That's why they came to Ethiopian Airlines when they forced us to be, to be party members. And Ethiopian Airlines was already state-owned, right? Yeah, uh, everything is state Especially majority of uh, uh, workers in Ethiopia are under uh, state-owned. And even the private uh, sectors are uh, under the influence of the party. We have a, a great uh, hope that our new leader will change uh, mm -hmm. everything. He's a positive thinker. He's uh, telling us everything will be changed. But everything is under the power of EPDRF still now. What particular issues or things would you like to see changed? As to me, uh, I need two things. One, uh, to establish democratic institutions in our country. The second one is to uh, remove all ethnic-based politics in our country. Those are very difficult long-term changes, so I hope eventually you'll get there. It's the sort of change that no one person can do. You've already done some great work talking to the U.S. policymakers about to, to, to make those changes that you're 
looking for democratic institutions. Um, yeah, uh, when I arrived uh, mm -hmm. here, United States, I was advised to go to Task International. The Task International is working on uh, abolition of torture and uh, at the international level, Task International receives uh, around 300 members every year and two-thirds of them are from uh, Ethiopia because uh, the, the situations in Ethiopia are uh, very uh, deteriorating. The majority of tortures in Africa uh, were uh, from Ethiopia. After I joined them, they helped me. Uh, I started to advocate about Ethiopia, and uh, I got the chance to address the whole repression and tortures in Ethiopia uh, at the Congress level. Uh, thanks to American government, they listened to us. Finally, they passed HR 128. And the House Resolution 128 advocates for more respect for human rights. In uh, HR 128, uh, uh, there is a, a statement that says, those who are responsible for tortures, repression, killings, should be accountable for what they have done. This means in line with justice. We need justice. Uh, these days we hear about uh, togetherness. Togetherness cannot replace uh, justice, justice and uh, accountability. We should have justice, but justice should not be replaced by revenge. What do you envision justice should look like? At least they should, uh, we should have a national reconciliation like uh, South Africa. At least they, sh uh, they should say, excuse me, this simple word. What do you think other countries learn from what Ethiopia has gone through and Ethiopians have gone through? Uh, they can learn uh, a lot from us because the more uh, you address your problem to the international community, the more you address your problem everywhere in the world, changes can come. Mm. Those who face uh, uh, repression and tortures, they can learn a lot from Ethiopians. Even, even if you are uh, one person, there, there are other communities, international communities, that can hear about you. And uh, solutions can come from uh, this. Well, I don't know about you, Sinclair, but I sure have learned a lot in this episode. It was so interesting. I mean, I, like we mentioned at the beginning, I, I didn't know much about Ethiopia going into this. And this was a great opportunity to learn more about the state of the country now. We learned a lot. But if our listeners were only to remember three key takeaways, what do you think they should be? Well, first of all, I would say that Ethiopia has taken a, a somewhat unique path in terms of its economic and political development. Prime Minister Abiy seems to be encouraging a range of reforms in his country while simultaneously engaging with the rest of the region. The Horn of Africa doesn't necessarily need to follow an explicitly American development model. Um, and in a sense, Ethiopia has been energized with a new sense of political freedom and growth, economic growth. They need to figure out how to use that momentum to affect positive developments in their neighborhood. I couldn't agree more, Sinclair. And the second takeaway, in my opinion, is that while the economy has grown substantially, youth unemployment in Ethiopia is still quite high and remains a big issue for the country. People 25 and under make up well over half the population, I think around 70 percent, and have been expressing their dissatisfaction in a number of ways, especially related to unemployment. And I think that if they don't benefit from this recent growth and are able to find jobs to provide for themselves, there is definitely a risk of future instability in the country and the region as a whole. Well said. 
And it has to be said that despite some improvements like releasing a number of political prisoners, of which uh, Kelly Gerpa was a beneficiary, uh, significant work remains to be done on human rights in Ethiopia. There's a tendency in some places uh, to want to move forward at the expense of not fully acknowledging what happened in the past, but it's important to do so for the whole country to be able to move on. Um, you can't expect people who have been, you know, victims of severe crimes to just forget that it happened and be able mm -hmm. to move on with their lives. There's no one solution right. for acknowledging or going through that process of reconciliation, but there needs to be some some sort of process mm -hmm. in order right, to avoid whitewashing the past. No, absolutely, Sinclair. I think Ethiopia is definitely going to be a country to keep an eye on in the coming years. Well, I think we should take this opportunity to thank our guests. So first, I'd like to thank Mr. Bekele Gerba for informing us on so many issues on Ethiopia, from the history to current political freedoms and what's going on with the country these days. Uh, really learned a lot from him. For updates on Mr. Gerba's work, you can follow his lawyer, Hanuk Gabisa, who is a visiting professor at Washington and Lee University School of Law at Hanuk Gabisa, H-E-N-O-K-G-A-B-I-S-A. And then I'd also like to thank Dr. Mena Demesi, who shared with us and brought a depth of knowledge to the sometimes overlooked role that the diaspora population can play. You can follow her and her work on Twitter at Mena Demesi or online at www.ethioseed.org. And lastly, but not leastly, I'd like to thank Vikati Ancho, um, who shared a very touching story about his experience at Ethiopian Airlines and really raised, I think for me and for hopefully all of you, um, awareness of the importance of the rights of persons with disabilities and other marginalized groups in Ethiopia. And you can find out more about the work he does for uh, torture survivors at Task International. That's www.tassc.org or on Twitter at T-A-S-S-C-I-N-T-L. Okay, Chessie, can you give us a hint for the next episode? Absolutely. So in this next episode's country, you can see in one point both the Atlantic Ocean and the Mediterranean Sea. Very cool. Have you seen this yourself, Jessie? Yes, I've been there. I've been to this country multiple times and to this location where you see it, I think, twice. And it's actually really cool because where the water meets, you see the delineation and the difference in color of the bodies of water. That's awesome. Yeah, it's really cool. So if you have an idea, listeners, of what this country may be, make sure to hit us up on Twitter or email, and we will give you a shout out in the next episode.